Welcome to the Someone Somewhere podcast. It's Sunday, March 25th, and I'm your host, Nicole. This is episode 15. My favorite fertility sign since the beginning of learning about fertility awareness has been charting with my temperature, my waking temperature. And the reason for that, I think, is because I have sort of an analytical mind and I get really attached to being able to look at data. I think that part of it is very scientific and satiates something for me, but it also helped me not only transition off of using hormonal birth control, but it taught me about what was going on with my entire body and even my adrenal system and a thyroid issue that I had uh, likely from using the pill. So I was partial to it because I was able to actually look at data over the course of a couple years and be able to see myself recover in that sense, um, and see my charts recover through that. So that might be why it's one that I just, I really love. And uh, there's no obscurity to the waking temperature, whereas sometimes with cervical fluid, people aren't sure what is the fluid supposed to look like, and is mine supposed to look like yours. And so because of that, I feel it's sometimes a harder method to explain to people, though it is the most important sign in terms of your daily diagnostics of am I fertile today? Your cervical fluid will always be the thing that will be able to tell you that. Uh, But the temperature is a chart. And so I always say that if you don't think that women can perform this method, then you're basically saying that we aren't smart enough to read a chart. And that bothers me. So uh, yeah, I take my temperature every day. And though that seems strange to some, as time has gone on, the adjustment to this as a part of my life, it's not invasive and it's not even a memorable part of my day. Many times I'm able to do it without really even waking up. And I have a thermometer that records that so that I can actually mark it down later in the day when I'm feeling like charting and not right in the first moments of waking up. And since I've been charting and obviously teaching other people to do so, I've seen the need to clarify more about this side of the method because it is a chart and so one must know how to interpret it in order for that data to be useful. And I want to encourage people to start researching more about how exactly the chart works because it will uh, change your way of thinking when you start to actually decode what the data is telling you. So the last fertility podcast was about cervical fluid and how great it is as a daily diagnostic sign, and I don't think that should be ignored or overlooked, but charting with temperature, which is otherwise known as the symptothermal method, is hard data. And in my experience, that just gives you a really compelling window into your fertility and into your overall health. So that's what I'll be discussing today in this podcast. And there are some procedural things that I'm going to go over, which are best practices for performing the reading, how to chart it using either the apps, which I personally love, or by hand, and drawing a cover line And this is the part that I really want to emphasize so that people can understand what the chart is and how to use it. 
This is the most important part in terms of being able to identify ovulation. Being able to draw a cover line correctly can tell you if and when ovulation has occurred, so that could tell you when it's safe to resume having unprotected intercourse, if and when pregnancy has occurred, and when menstruation is going to occur. So all of those things, and then a few more other uh, reproductive issues as well can be decoded through looking at the temperature charts. So I'll go over that for a while, and I'll also talk about how to disregard temperatures that are, seem out of whack or special circumstances, like if you work the night shift or if you're a flight attendant, where you might not have a, a regular sleep schedule. I'll talk about that for a little while. And then I'll talk about what a thermal shift is. So once you're able to actually draw a cover line, there's a what they call a biphasic temperature shift that you should be able to observe in your chart. And so that can obviously, it identifies ovulation and all of those things I just mentioned. But what does it look like and what's typical and what's atypical? How can you start to understand different intricacies in the chart and what they're telling you about different hormone levels in the body, what they could be telling you about your PCOS, what they could be telling you about your pregnancy, they could be warning you of a miscarriage. There's a lot of different things that you can really read through this, so I'm going to go over that as well. So let's get into it. You want to take your temperature the first thing when you wake up, even in a state of rest and when you're still laying down. You don't want to get up, go to the bathroom, brush your teeth, or talk on the phone for 20 minutes and then come back and remember to uh, take your temperature because you're reducing the accuracy with which you can take your resting metabolic rate. And so the best time to do that is when you've had at least four hours of uninterrupted sleep. That's when you're going to get the, the most uh, accurate reading. And though I don't take my temperature at the exact same time every day, there's about a two-hour window that I try to hit between six and eight that, uh, that I would be taking it, depending on when I wake up. So that's the first thing. Secondly, you'll want to use the thermometer orally and leave it there until it beeps and takes the recording. In my case, my thermometer takes a recording and I can look that up later and it'll also tell me the time and the date that it was taken so I can actually record whenever I want to, and I do suggest that for the ease of use. It is really advantageous to have a thermometer that has that capability, and there are many available. So if you feel like you're not getting a good reading orally, you can also take your temperature vaginally. You should just be aware that you need to choose one or the other. Again, for the consistency of data, uh, vaginal temperatures tend to be a little bit higher than oral temperatures, so you could be messing with your own data if you're switching back and forth. Um, and that's really all there is to it. It's not, very, it's not a very complicated uh, or invasive system at all. And a lot of times I take it and even go back to sleep. So that's, that's pretty much it as far as recording and getting the data. You'll want to do this every day. And even when you're menstruating, that's not a time that you would take off because, again, you can learn a lot of things about your chart and there would definitely be a lot less sex on the period that resulted in pregnancy if you were charting because you would be able to see 
that you have a very short follicular phase, uh, meaning the first half of the cycle comes very quickly, perhaps with an ovulation around day 11 or 12. So sometimes sex on the sixth or seventh day could actually have some cervical mucus and, uh, and result in a pregnancy. If you're going to chart by hand, you can find fertility charts online that actually have a nice little graph already set up for you rather than just doing it on graph paper, but I suppose you really could. Um, and basically you're going to take your temperatures and you're going to put them on the chart and you'll connect them with a pen. In the case of the wonderful fertility apps such as the Clue app or the Kandara app, you can just add the temperatures every day and it will show up in your chart. Um, and that just makes for really easy uh, access to the data and being able to see your daily changes. And I think some apps do a better job than others of dealing with the temperature and actually creating that graph. So feel it out for a little while, but then you'll really become committed to one app that can uh, really help you make this method, again, just even simpler I should also mention in terms of what type of thermometer to get, you're going to want to get a basal body thermometer, not just a regular fever thermometer that you would get in the drugstore. You're going to be looking for something that reads to the 1 100th of a degree, so that'd be a temperature such as 97.33. Because the change, the thermal shift is actually so slight in terms of uh, degrees. It's less than one degree of a change, usually more like a half degree. So you really need that one one hundredth to be able to give you an accurate reading. And that brings us to how to draw the cover line. Basically, you've started charting. You're trying to determine when you've ovulated in a given cycle. So what you're looking for is a rapid rise above a range of low temperatures that preceded it. So this forms a biphasic pattern in the chart when you look at a, an entire chart. The thermal shift is often very obvious. So for instance, with myself this month, I had a rise from a 97.1 to a 97.9. So that's a 0.8 shift. So that to me signifies progesterone. And progesterone is only present in the post-ovulatory phase. Usually the cervical fluid will be developing and getting wetter as my temperatures are hanging out in the low 97s. So you're looking for the first temperature that is much higher than the six temperatures before it. And that is how you'll actually draw your cover line. And as the chart continues, as you continue to chart, you should see a sustained rise in your waking temperature, meaning that the temperatures, once they've spiked, they should remain above the line that you've drawn. So in drawing a cover line, I like to draw it one-tenth above the cluster of low temperatures. So remember, when you're seeing the temperature spike, it should be significant enough that it's hanging out above the six temperatures before it. And those six temperatures say the highest of those temperatures is 97.2. So I would draw my cover line at 97.3 and say the spike of the day was 97.7. And then the next day you have a 97.8. 
So you see that sustained rise now for two days. So I'll put it one-tenth above the low temperatures, and that is what you can consider your cover line. And that's where your post-ovulatory temperature should be hanging out. But this is a good time to talk about not seeing what you want to see out of data. If you go back to like high school science, like one of the first things when you do an experiment is that you have to be unbiased in the way that you're looking at the data. And this is no different. I feel that a lot of people want to see certain things in their chart. Like I'm mentioning what a, uh, a typical chart looks like going through the, the natural hormonal uh, rhythm. However, there are so many things that affect our environment that we need to be looking at the chart in the sense of an overall health perspective. So if you're not seeing a temperature shift, don't make one up because it means that your body is telling you that you haven't yet ovulated. It is, it is a puzzle in that sense. So drawing a cover line is important because it can solidify through the data the likelihood that you have ovulated. So it's, it's really, really important to look at it and chart it through this method, which is a scientific method. And charts can be confusing, they can be very messy, especially when people are transitioning off of birth control or if they have had reproductive health issues for a long time. So it is telling you something always, but it might not be the typical chart. So that's just something that you definitely wanna keep in mind when you're drawing a cover line. You're gonna to wanna to be looking for those six temperatures that are low before three temperatures that are high, and then you're going to draw it about one-tenth above all those low temperatures to determine your biphasic pattern. Now let's talk about outlying temperatures for a second. Occasionally I'll have a temperature that's way out of whack of the rest of the temperatures, whether that's high or low. Um, sometimes in the follicular phase I'll have a really high temperature after I drink alcohol, I have more than a glass of wine, usually it'll be a whole degree higher, which is, it will show up as a very sharp spike. And because I know my pattern and my cycle well enough at this point, I can usually identify when those are outlying. You're looking at the overall chart. You're not charting the temperatures day to day to day looking at it uh, in a micro sense, I guess. Uh, you're gonna wanna be looking at it in the, the wide sense of let's look at the entire chart and, uh, and there's a few telltale signs in there of when you've, when you've ovulated. Most times outlying temperatures have a trigger and this could be a change from daylight savings time or you traveled or you drank. In terms of people who work the night shift or have an unusual sleeping pattern, you really just want to make sure that you're taking your temperature once a day during the time where you have your most restful or longest sleep. Try to get more than four hours, uh, please, for, for yourself, but also uh, to be able to take a, an accurate temperature reading. So it doesn't necessarily have to be the same time every day, but you do want to make sure that it's while you are rested. That's really the key uh, to it all. And so yeah, you, you'll get better at identifying when those outlying temperatures happen and when uh, something very disruptive in your life. 
but you can always rely on cervical fluid as another another sign, uh, and that's always comforting. What I've been describing in terms of the temperature shift is also known as your thermal shift pattern. And when we say biphasic, what we're saying is that there's two major phases to this chart. There are temperatures that are below a line and there are temperatures that are above a line, and they come in different waves. So an example of one type of chart is called the slow rise, which means that you may have six low temperatures below the cover line, but then your first temperature above the cover line is maybe only one-tenth above. But the following day, it rises one-tenth again, and then the third day, it rises again. So now you're 0.3 above the six temperatures before it and then remains that way for the rest of the cycle, even getting a little bit higher towards the end and then dropping before menstruation occurs. That's one example of a shift that isn't exactly obvious. I'm not seeing a dramatic spike, but over the course of a few days, I can clearly identify that the majority of these temperatures are higher than the six temperatures that were before them. Another example is also known as a stair-step rise, and this is where you might see a spike on the first day and then kind of evening out at that level, so maybe 97.4 and then 97.5 and then back to 97.4, so it looks like it's plateaued. And then the f days following that, you're like 97.7, 97.8, so it does this, you know, low temperatures kind of hovering at the cover line or right above it, and then going into a much higher, much more obvious, higher numbers for the rest of the cycle. And then there's something called the fallback rise, which is where you may get an initial rise above the cover line, but on the following day, you fall back below it. And then on the third day, you rise back above it dramatically, and then the temperatures continue to be high. Um, so you might get an outlying low temperature right when you're ovulating. And you can only really confirm for the purposes of contraception that you have ovulated and it is safe again to resume when you have three of those temperatures that are obviously higher and above the six that came before them. So even with a fallback rise, you can sometimes... Uh, see that ovulation occurred earlier than you thought. So you're waiting for it to occur and then you see that even though it fell back a little bit, the temperatures following it are all high. So at that point you would be able to confirm. Those might be a little bit harder to decode than just the dramatic rise on the, on the day after ovulation. So there are lots of different types of charts and I've seen all three of those uh, sort of weirder thermal shifts in my own uh, charting. And so some for contraceptive purposes, it just means that I'm very safe and also paying attention to the other sign, which is where, when's the cervical fluid drying up during this process? Because those two things should be happening at the same time. So I'm waiting for, like I'm really, really wet, and then all of a sudden one day it's like no, no, uh, secretions at all. And if that's correlating with, you know, two days of high temperatures, it's like, okay, I'm done. Like there's, at this point, there's no chance of, of pregnancy anymore. So that's great. And that changes, you know, what sex is like for the rest of the cycle, because there's 
no chance of pregnancy. So that's always a fun part to reach, <laughs> always looking out for that. And then there's the next question of, well, when am I going to menstruate? Because when I know that I've ovulated, I can basically predict a window of the length of my cycle. And that's because the second half of your menstrual cycle is consistent. The beginning half, the follicular phase, is variable. So that's why that's what's causing uh, longer cycles than the global average being 29 days. If you're having cycles of 42 days, 49 days, in your chart, you would be able to identify on day 32, say, that you ovulated, uh, which is quite quite late um, and usually indicative of something else that's going on uh, with the body. However, it helps you determine that your cycle is going to be longer. If you see at day 32 that you finally seeing that temperature shift, it means that in about 13 to 15 days, you can expect uh, the end of, of the cycle. And that's, of course, if you're not trying to conceive and uh, don't come into contact with any semen because um, it'll also tell you that you've become pregnant instead of your temperature at the end of the cycle dropping, and mine notoriously drops before I menstruate. So I will wake up that morning, I'll see the drop, and it'll drop below the cover line, um, and then a few hours later, usually I'll be bleeding. And that's a really just very amazing thing that I did not know was possible. So I, I lo absolutely love that. And then if I were to become pregnant, I would see that that temperature would not drop. Instead, you're gonna wait for 18 days of high temperatures, and that's gonna indicate that implantation has occurred uh, and that you are pregnant. So you can actually learn that you are pregnant without taking a pregnancy test, uh, which I think is another amazing aspect to the chart. In the same way that the chart could tell you through 18 days of sustained high temperatures that you are in fact pregnant, you could also identify a chart in which you did not ovulate. Uh, you'll see this in people who are premenopausal or people coming off of the pill or hormones of any kind. Um, there's a certain amount of uh, reproductive shutdown that happens. And so through that, you can uh, be seeing anovulatory cycles. And what that means is that you had a pattern of bleeding and then you went through a cycle, and then you bled again, but in the temperature chart, there is no biphasic pattern, and that would mean that you cannot identify a cover line. So if you're looking at an entire chart of yours, and you can't identify six temperatures in the chart that are lower than all the temperatures beyond them, so you're just getting all kinds of ups and downs, that's an example of a temperature pattern that is anovulatory. So that is obviously indicative of something else that's going on in the body. And again, we're very affected by our environment, so it could be a number of things. Illness, ovarian cysts, going on vacation, being really stressed out, gaining a lot of weight, exercising too much. All kinds of things could be delaying your ovulation and thus recording the temperature and understanding it through daily processes 
you know, the best way to make use of your data. The best way to use the temperature chart is in conjunction with cervical fluid. That's why I always talk about this multidisciplinary method with what we call multiple biomarkers because that's the best way to identify the fertile window and, and when you have ovulated. In terms of charting to avoid pregnancy, you're going to consider yourself safe again to have unprotected sex the evening of the third consecutive high temperature past your peak day of mucus. And peak day is something that I discussed in the cervical mucus podcast, so go back to that one and uh, really flush out how the cervical mucus works. Um, but what you're going to want to see is the overlap of your cervical mucus drying up and you're seeing those three consecutive high temperatures uh, past your peak day of mucus. And that would be how you can draw your cover line and identify your therm thermal shift for the purposes of contraception. And then beyond that, all the way up to menstruation, you're, as long as you're above the cover line, you know, you're, you're in a really good spot for uh safe, unprotected sex that involves semen, of course. You can have lots of different kinds of unprotected sex. Specifically, in this sense, we're talking about uh, semen ending up in the vaginal canal. And if you're trying to actively conceive, you're not going to want to wait for the temperature shift because the temperature shift indicates that the egg already lived and died. And especially when you see two to three days of sustained high temperatures, you've missed the window for conception. So what you're going to be looking for is that peak day of mucus, the wettest day of cervical fluid, and that should occur when your temperatures are still low. And you'll see that lining up. In particular, sometimes mine will even fall even lower right before I ovulate, and then I see a dramatic rise. So when I kind of see temperatures floating a little bit low, and then I'm getting all this mucus, it's like that's when you should be, if you were trying to conceive, that's when you should be trying, not after you see a temperature shift. The temperature shift does not occur on ovulation day. It occurs when ovulation has already occurred. Uh, and therefore, the egg, which only lives for 12 to 24 hours, is pretty much on its way out. Um, and so you definitely want to wait three days because sometimes more than one egg is released. In the case of people who have uh, had a lot of twins in their family, that can sometimes be the case. That peak day and the day of the first high temperature are the same. But most likely, if you're paying attention to your fluid, it's happening when those temperatures are still low. And I would say that if there's a discrepancy between any of the post-ovulatory rules about the cervical fluid drying up or about the temperature shift, wait until both signs fully indicate infertility. And that's the best way to be most conservative about the, uh, the method for terms of contraception. Um, and if you doubt your signs or you have other things going on like sickness or there's, there's other variables where you're just like, I'm not sure, obviously don't take the chance because the body, when it is fertile, is doing everything to plan for pregnancy and make it easy for the sperm to get where they're going. So yeah, you really want to wait and overlap your signs and make sure that everything is put all together in your head. And that really gets easier over time. I've said it before that I think focusing on one side of the method, uh, one sign is the best way to get started. Like 
if you've been focusing on cervical fluid for a few months and you're feeling like, yeah, I understand my pattern, I get what's going on here, you can really focus on the temperature pattern. And I've gone back and forth with like my study of each of these signs and really doing the research on each one and the history of of each one, uh, because I find it all very fascinating. But putting it all together has given me a huge uh, advantage into understanding my whole health. And that is one of the most important things that the, uh, the temperature chart does for me. So now let's talk about some other aspects of the temperature chart. The first one is if you still see some high temperatures during your menstruation period. As I just mentioned, the drop in progesterone that signifies that I'm going to menstruate happens uh, pretty often for me. But sometimes the next day on day two or day three, I'll see a high temperature. And that's usually just the result of residual progesterone that's going and uh, basically fluctuating out uh, during menstruation and then it's going to go back to its its low uh, levels during the follicular phase. It's on a curve. It's not so rigid where it's like we're low, we're high. Like sometimes it's very gradual and so in the same sense when you end your last cycle and go into your newest one, your temperature sometimes will fall dramatically and stay low but a lot of times they'll fall very gradually into the low temperatures and then by the time that my period is finished, they're definitely in the low, the low area. Now this one really threw me for a long time. This was like my main focus when it came to healing because I started taking my temperature for the purposes of contraception and it works a hundred percent for me for that. Uh, And that's, that's fantastic uh, data right there. (laughs) But the more compelling thing that I noticed was that my temperatures were in a much lower than average waking temperature range. So what that means is that your temperature doesn't just tell you about the amount of progesterone in the body, though it does, and it doesn't just tell you about ovulation or if you're pregnant or when you're going to menstruate, though it does. The temperatures themselves can actually tell you what your resting metabolic rate is, and this can tell you about your thyroid activity. So possible thyroid issue could result from seeing very high or very low waking temperatures. The normal range for a metabolic rate is between 97.0 and 97.7 in the pre-ovulatory temperatures, and a post-ovulatory range of 97.8 and up. Some clinicians even believe that a consistent pattern of pre-ovulatory temperatures before a 97.3 should be tested for low thyroid function. Now, when I tell you my low temperatures were 96, sometimes 96.1, Uh, and even falling lower than that. So when I got off birth control, my thyroid function was of a person who has hypothyroidism. And I was floored by this, like absolutely floored when I read Tony Weschler's explanation of your higher or lower than average waking temperatures. Because it was to a T my charts. My charts were extremely 
low. On top of this, my average cycle for the first six months of getting off was about 33 days and no less than that. And I had had at least two to three long cycles above 40 days of 46 and a 49 day cycle. Low thyroid function was definitely staring me in the face when I saw that I was having long cycles with low waking temperatures and some of which could have definitely had uh, no thermal shift. So when I first got off birth control, I wasn't even ovulating. I wasn't identifying any cervical fluid at that point. Uh, This scared me very much um, to see that my symptoms were matching up through the temperatures uh, with someone who has a hypothyroid disorder. So I went Uh, very deep into healing my thyroid and it took two full years but my temperatures are now in the normal range for metabolic function and over the course of two years to see it as a whole the chart go up one entire degree from pre-ovulatory temperatures in in around 96 to 96.5 and post-ovulatory temperatures in like the 97.0 to 97.5 range uh, were what I was dealing with. And now I'm, I'm in a normal range. So another thing that could happen is not just the hypothyroidism, which would be low thyroid function, but also a hyperthyroidism. Symptoms of this include high waking temperatures in the preovulatory, talking about above 98.4, short cycles, very light menses, and a short luteal phase from the day of ovulation to the day of menstruation being less than 10 days would be an, you know, an extreme case of, of hyperthyroidism. Um, and just general infertility uh, comes from hyperthyroidism. So you can see that the reproductive system and the adrenals are uh, cannot be separated. You are dealing with the whole the whole body when you're talking about the reproductive system, and it is a vital sign in that way. So uh, definitely look at the actual temperatures in your chart and make sure that you're hanging in the 97s. The preovulatories in the 96s or the 98s are telling you that you are having low or high thyroid function, both of which is not healthy. Another common condition that is not well understood is endometriosis. And the symptoms of endometriosis are usually intense menstrual cramps, pain during intercourse, sometimes infertility, heavy or irregular bleeding, and then other things like intestinal pain, uh, constipation, fatigue, and a low resistance to infection. Um, there's still a lot that needs to be understood about endometriosis and it deserves its own space, uh, beyond this podcast, but you can chart your symptoms by utilizing fertility awareness because although we talk about the three main signs being waking body temperature, cervical fluid, and cervical position, there are also secondary symptoms that we mark in our charts. For me, I have chronic migraines, so that's something that I've been charting for the entire time. So now I have a really good record of 
how I've been healing myself in regards to my migraines, how I've been lessening my pain in that sense. So you can actually chart your symptoms of endometriosis right on your temperature chart. This may correlate with ovulation, such as pain during ovulation. And then also for things like backaches or dizziness, nausea, uh, or even when you start to experience uh, spotting uh, during the cycle. So all of that can also be gleaned from utilizing the chart for endometriosis. However, the chart does not give you anything in particular uh, in the three main signs that would indicate that you have endometriosis. It's actually uh, quite difficult to diagnose. However, PCOS is a different story. PCOS stands for polycystic ovarian syndrome, and it's actually a metabolic disorder. Uh, It's associated with the cysts on the ovaries, but that is only one of the criteria to diagnose uh, someone with PCOS. Um, There are other symptoms such as long or irregular cycles that uh, often do not result in ovulation, so a, a long period of infertility with a long cycle. There's also a pattern of cervical fluid that happens for long stretches of time, and this is seen as uh, possibly the body's attempt to ovulate multiple times in a cycle, though uh, not actually succeeding at that. There's also other types of uh, symptoms, including excessive body or facial hair, which is known as hirsutism, uh, male pattern hair loss, acne, obesity, and as I mentioned, uh, infertility. So PCOS has markers in the chart that are significant, the first of which being that the cycles are longer. So if you're often having cycles that are 35 days to 50 days or longer than that, that is definitely a classic, uh, a classic symptom of PCOS. That, along with these long patches of cervical fluid in that long follicular phase that you're having, uh, and possibly no ovulation at all, though sometimes there is an ovulation, um, that could be a a pretty uh, great indicator that you're suffering from this. And it definitely has a lot to do with insulin resistance, and uh, it's pretty pretty complicated uh, metabolic syndrome, but it can be managed through charting, and it can also be managed through really good diet uh, and lifestyle practices. So charting for PCOS is actually, in my opinion, really wise because it helps you uh, be able to at least manage your, uh, your issues in a more structured way. And also over time, you can see yourself heal and maybe manage your symptoms to the point where you don't notice them. I believe that with the integration of certain herbs and and other dietary changes that you could possibly get your cycles back down to a normal, more in the the low 30s, uh, cycling through every month. And lastly, understanding the luteal phase can show you that there are certain insufficiencies that could be possible there especially when you are trying to get pregnant. So the luteal phase would be your post-ovulatory phase, and it should be 12 to 16 days. But if it falls around 10 days or less, it usually means that this phase is too short. What that can tell you is that a fertilized egg would have no chance to implant in the uterine lining. It needs more time. 
And sometimes it appears to be a normal length, but the amount of progesterone, so the temperatures don't show up as super high and risen. And so that would mean that progesterone is not actually optimal to produce an ideal environment for uh, an implanted egg. So for that reason, you might not have a successful pregnancy. And lastly, there's a situation where the luteal phase could appear normal in length, but progesterone drops dramatically about a week before the end of the cycle. And so you may have some spotting uh, during that time. And again, this usually means that your progesterone is low. So you could take steps to improve your diet and uh, integrate more progesterone helping herbs into, uh, into your regimen. And you should be able to actually see those changes show up in the chart if you give it about three months, I would say, is usually the best way to, uh, to actually chart and see any reproductive health changes through your chart. So let's put this all together. Basically, I take my temperature every day and I record it through a digital app. That helps me figure out exactly when I ovulate. For myself, currently, I'm trying to avoid pregnancy. So in the six days going up to ovulation... I practice best safe sex practices to ensure that sperm does not come into contact with the vaginal canal. After I witness a spike in my temperature that is sustained for at least three days, I draw a cover line which indicates all the temperatures before it being lower and all the temperatures that will continue for the rest of the cycle to be higher than it. This also means that I'm safe to resume having semen in the vaginal canal without any chance of pregnancy. And then uh, t uh, roughly two weeks later, I'll see those high temperatures drop again. And usually when they drop below the cover line, I can expect to bleed within four to six hours. And that's it. That's how to chart your temperature. And uh, it's, it's a fantastic a resource that I think extends so far beyond contraception. However, it is extremely foolproof in the sense that I've utilized it for 30 cycles and it works. So I hope that you enjoyed this. I hope that you were able to take in all of the different understandings of thermal shifts, how they work, reproductive health issues that can be identified through charting temperature, and hopefully it'll inspire you to go out and get a basal body thermometer and check it out for yourself. We were told that our temperatures are 98.6, but if you have a menstrual cycle, then that's not true at all. There's actually a much more complicated story to tell about temperature. And so I hope that this uh, was able to alleviate any confusion about how the temperature method works and why it is a really important sign to identifying when it's safe to uh, resume unprotected sex uh, if you're using it for contraception or when to best time uh, sex for pregnancy, which should hopefully be before those temperatures spike. This is definitive data that tells us a lot of different information about ourselves, our bodies, how things are functioning, our adrenal system, and this has been around. This was first published in scientific journals in the late 1800s, about the 1870s. So this isn't a new technology. It's actually uh, rather old, and um, a lot has been done in the 
since the technological age, a lot has been done to uh, democratize more of this information and to also make thermometers more available, basal thermometers available to people. They're showing up in drugstores a little bit more. There's also Bluetooth technology coming out. But one thing I do want to say is that fertility awareness can be practiced, one, without a thermometer technically. Two, I would encourage you to utilize a thermometer because of how definitive it is. And it does not have to be complicated and expensive. There is a lot of recent buzz around fertility awareness and non-hormonal contraception, which I'm all about. But I also push back on these reproductive technologies that are overpriced. So a lot of these Bluetooth thermometers, they're like in the close to $100 range, and it's just not necessary for... Uh, fertility awareness. I use a $20 thermometer and it's fabulous. It does exactly what I need it to do and I pay attention to my chart. You shouldn't be paying attention to algorithms or apps to be doing fertility awareness for you. You have to look at your own signs and you have to pay attention to yourself every day. And so that is a commitment, but it's a commitment to self that, in my opinion, is very worth it and so much so that I don't think about going back to my old way of life before this. So hopefully some of this was able to teach you about the symptothermal method and uh, hopefully you utilize it soon. Thanks for listening. This concludes episode 15 of the Someone Somewhere podcast. Have a good night.